Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Adam. And I'm Chris. This is Tim. And we're going to give our hot takes on the game we just finished playing. Godspeed. Before we provide a description of the game we're playing today, remember that you can join us into the conversation if you follow us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes or on Facebook at Board Game Hot Takes for the latest conversations about the games we're playing. And also, right now we're holding a Frosthaven competition. Basically, you can win a copy of Frosthaven, a full pledge of it. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter or follow us on Facebook. And you can also write a review for us on Apple Podcasts and you'll get two entries. Basically, what's going to happen is that we're going to look at all the entries. We're going to randomly draw an entry once the competition's over and before the Frosthaven Kickstarter ships. If you win, we're going to just ship it right to your house. So good luck. Please go ahead and follow us on those social media uh, platforms. Now let's jump into a description of the game. All right. Well, Godspeed is a space exploration-themed Euro game for two to five players set in the 1960s, the height of the international race to space. But there's a twist. The race to the moon was a lie, a story to divert public attention away from the real prize, which was colonization of a small exoplanet called Minos, light years from Earth and reachable only by a wormhole. Players control teams of explorers from one of several nations vying for dominance in this brave new world. Godspeed's played in 10 rounds, made up of four phases each. First, in the High Council phase, the nations convene to decide how they'll respond to an event on Minos or back on Earth. Players can choose to work together by dedicating resources and reaping their rewards, or ignoring the crisis, keeping their resources, and paying the penalty. In the Supply Depot phase, players bid for the first player token and precious resources that will help them complete their missions. In the Actions phase, players send their team members to undertake one of several actions, such as building infrastructure, engaging in commerce, or improving their defenses. And finally, in the Resolution phase, players produce resources, recover their team members, and begin planning for the next round. Throughout the game, players will tame a harsh extraterrestrial environment, interact with strange alien artifacts, and work to manage international politics light years from Earth. In the end, the nation that most successfully exploits Minos' resources and collects the most points will claim victory. Godspeed was designed by Clayton Hargrave and Adam Hill with art by Jesse Riggle and Steve Torres, and it's published by Pandasaurus Games. Thanks, Chris. Uh, let's talk about, first of all, the gameplay and mechanisms in the game. And uh, Chris, why don't you start us out? Uh, you actually were the one that wanted to play this game tonight. This is a Kickstarter you had delivered, and you've been looking forward to giving it a shot. So on your first play, what stood out to you? What, what did you really like about the gameplay? I like the fact that there's a bunch of different things happening here in the sense that it is, in a way, a traditional uh, Euro game. It's a worker placement game, but it has a couple of little twists thrown in that I thought it made, thought made it kind of interesting. Um, the first one is the, uh, the high council phase. And that's kind of interesting because it gives you the opportunity to either work as a team to complete some goal that everybody can benefit from, or you can save your resources and take the hit and, uh, and basically hose everybody else that's, uh, that's on, the, on the planet as well. Uh, and then there's also the, um, the uh, supply, was it supply depot phase where you bid in order to get benefits that you can use throughout the round and throughout the game. Uh, and then whoever, whoever bids the highest gets the first choice and then second and third and so on. So you, you're, you, it's this clever combination of worker placement plus the bidding, plus 
whatever it is you call that thing for the high council phase. And I thought that it, it all worked pretty nicely together and, and made for something a little bit more interesting than a standard standard worker placement. Yeah, I want to call out that on the high council phase, you're not actually bidding resources, but what you're actually doing is giving up one of your five the uh, team members. So each of us has five team members. They all represent a different type of team member. Like you're going to have an ambassador on your, on your team, a biologist, et cetera, a, a captain. When you go to that high council phase, the high council phase is going to require you to give up one of those team members. So you're not giving up resources to do that, but you're, you're losing a team member that you can use for the worker placement later or for the bidding phase. And the team members all have different numbers on them so that the ambassador is seven for everybody. But depending on the faction that you are, some of the team members, like let's say that you're a biologist, it might be a four for Chris, it might be a three for for Adam and it might be a two for Tim. So they're all a little bit different, um, but that comes into play primarily in the bidding phase because when you're bidding, you can put one or more of those team members up and the total number is who's gonna get the first pick of those rewards as well as get a, a second final reward. So I just wanted to clarify that, that, that that's how those all tie in together and that any of the ones that you don't use for one of those two phases, then you can use them to take actions. So it, it is a pretty cool mix where these three different phases are little different mini games that are happening, but you have to you know, leverage those five, the five team members and, and kind of make a decision. Do I want to spend it early? Do I want to bid high and give it up for a later phase? So yeah, it's, that's a pretty cool little mix of things going on. Yeah, to add on to the, uh, the high council discussion, basically the high council and the supply phase, those are kind of like a preamble to the worker placement phase. And specifically the high council phase was neat to me because... You know, at first I was like, when is anyone not going to participate? It just doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't, you know, why would you not want the benefit? But then that reveals itself as the game goes on. You build up a hand of cards and you might be able to use these cards strategically to, you know, to hold back on the high council phase, knowing that you're going to be able to move back up one of these resource tracks um, for free at the end of the next round. So later in the game, that's exactly what I did. I was, I was one of these spots that give you a resource once you get to it. I said, no, you know, I'll decline participating in the high council phase. I moved down on that track. And later at the end of that round, I moved right back up and got my resource back and uh, all my benefits. Whereas, you know, Chris and Tim, I kind of hosed them from getting their high council benefits. So that was kind of neat how kind of the whole game I was asking you guys, hey, what's when would somebody not want to participate in this? And there's a couple kind of small nuanced cases that were kind of neat as to uh, you know when you wouldn't participate. So I guess just that whole preamble to the worker placement was kind of a neat mechanism for me. The way that that really pans out is that in the worker placement phase, there's basically 10 action spaces you can take. For each of the different types of team members you have, there's two action spaces. And so it's pretty neat because depending on which ones you have left over, which team members you have left over by that phase, those are the only actions you can take on the board. So it's even more relevant that it's not like you're just giving up a worker, but you may be giving up a very specific worker. So if I use my biologist here, I can't use the biologist to do either of the two actions that are in the worker placement phase. So just one more way that those, those three things, those three little mini games all tie in in an interesting way and what you do in one of them is going to impact what you do in the others. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. What were you going to say about that? Well, it was interesting. I um, I hadn't really thought about this before, but it is, it, at least to me, it was a pretty new uh, mechanism. Having it set up so that you couldn't just use any worker to do any task. Mm. So I'm thinking about, you know, your standard worker placement. Like, um, I think one of the first ones I ever played was uh, Lords of Waterdeep. 
uh, where, you know, a guy is a guy is a guy, basically. But in this one, you have to have a biologist to use the biologist benefit or to the space or the, uh, the, the scientist or the military person, or, you know, you have to have a specific worker ready to do a specific task, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And it's specifically like the ambassador, which was the highest number worker, which you usually would end up giving up in the bidding phase that you had the second one. Those were arguably the best benefits every time because you could use it to build any development card and you could use it to get any wild resources. Most of the time you wanted to give that, that up in an earlier phase, but if you didn't, then you, you had it left over a, a you know, worker that you could do something really cool with. Agreed. Interesting decision right from the beginning of the, of the first round. And I like how they had those point values assigned to those workers. That ties into a little bit of asymmetry between the different factions, each mm-hmm. uh, country or each nation each of their workers has a different point value. So a biologist for Russia is worth different than a biologist for the United States, for example. Yeah, and going to the uh, asymmetry, one of the things I liked about the asymmetry here is that I think there is a risk in asymmetric games where there is going to be a, a balance issue. You know, someone's going to identify if you get this particular faction and you take advantage of its ability, you're going to be able to win 90% of the time. This game offered asymmetry. It offered some different kind of starting you know, capabilities and bonuses, but doesn't seem like it could possibly be unbalanced. You know, the workers are slightly different numbers. You each start with one of your uh, different buildings built, so it gives you a little bit different production value, but they're just a, one of the four resources. And then depending on if you've got a relic, then you'd move up one of the tracks. So generally, you know, they, they seem like almost exactly balanced, but they do give you slightly different kind of gameplay benefits and maybe help you focus a little bit. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. It still felt like we were playing slightly different games, but not to a point where I was like, oh, Adam's ability is so strong. I don't feel like I can keep up with that or it seems it seems too powerful. This game doesn't feel like, um, you know, he won on his own. Like usually the only way Adam ever wins is when he wins because of his faction benefits. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. Usually it's just random luck. Like I ended up with a, a 20 when no one would expect a, a huge roll. So. Well, there's also a piece of that too that's, um, I, I can't remember which game we played where I mentioned this, but the asymmetry is... Um, it's not that it's not that asymmetrical. Yeah. I mean, there it's all basically uh, slightly different point values for different things or slightly different benefits. Uh, the comparison that I think is um, the one that I think sort of goes to the opposite extreme is Cthulhu Wars, where you've got entirely different mechanisms, you know, for every different faction, which which gets a little intimidating, especially if you're not that familiar with the game. In this one, you don't have to really have a super deep knowledge of the game to be able to appreciate and understand that, you know, Adam's going to be able to do something slightly different than I can or Tim, than, that Tim can do. Um, so it's very easy to follow the asymmetry here, even if it's not a game you're super duper familiar with. Yeah. Now I want to go back to the worker placement spots themselves. And I'll say, I, you know, it, it was interesting that you were kind of forced into what worker placement spots you could take based on which team members you had left by that phase. But I was a little disappointed that the worker placement spots were not very exciting. Most of them, one of the options was to get a development card of a certain color or finish the development card. And that made it up for a little bit of a, you know, that's probably where the most contention came in. Because if two people have a blue development card they're trying to finish, only one of them is going to get it done in a round. And that can make a difference for some of the for some of the phase bonuses and for the getting up the tracks at the end of the game and things like that. But the other abilities that were available other than building the structures, which is what the engineers could do, most of the other benefits felt 
okay. You know, they were not exciting. Usually they were just like, okay, I've got one more guy left over. I guess I'll go take that spot and get something for it. They were okay, but there just wasn't a whole lot of excitement for what you were doing during that um, worker placement phase from my perspective. What do you guys think about that? Oh, I agree with that completely. And that was going to be one of my main my main complaints about the game is that in particular, um, a lot of the... A lot of the action with your your individual player actions, uh, your worker placement pieces, has to do with what are called development cards. And essentially, development cards, which are available for all of the different areas of the game, you know, the science, the the military, the development cards basically let you move up a track. And so, a lot of your time you're spending doing these developing cards, and really all that's doing is making it so that you move up a track, which in the end is going to get you some points. Which, I mean, it, it, it's functional, and it's there's still interesting decisions to be made, but it's not super duper interesting. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree. For me, the interesting choices were that auction and the supply the supply depot, and then the worker placement was like, all right, here I, I can go over here, I can delve, I can put this guy over there, and then. So by the time you got to the worker placement, it wasn't as fun to me as the first that that preamble part. Yeah, and it, going back to you, actually made a little bit of a comparison to Lords of Waterdeep here, Chris, for worker placement. You know, which is the most generic, basic, straightforward worker placement game. But what that game is doing really is it's basically a way to fulfill orders. You're you're buying those quest cards and you're buying the resources, and then you're completing the the quest cards. I guess they're adventures in that game. And that's essentially what most of this game is, is it's buying the development cards and trying to complete them. Instead of just getting straight points, instead you're moving up those tracks. Now, I do think that that adds some interest. It adds a lot of kind of competition, a lot of player interaction, where instead of just going for points and, hey, I'm just going to get the most points I can and hopefully I end up at the end, it was a lot about jockeying and saying, I really want to get a blue card done right now because I can move up a little past Chris on that track. And being top of the track is going to get me eight points, second place will get me four. It, it did offer, for that kind of traditional, just filling an order model of Euro, it offered a lot more player interaction and, and caring about what the other players were doing. So I thought that was a nice benefit to doing what was pretty much a, a very standard formula here. Um, but the, the action that you were taking doing that was, was not that fun. Now, you only did two worker placements. You know, unless you had a card that gave you something else. So that phase went quickly. In fact, all the phases moved pretty pretty quickly. You know, the game flowed pretty quickly. So it didn't feel too, um, you know, just tiresome to be going through and doing lots of worker placements and stuff there. It was fairly quickly, but, you know, just, uh, just the actions were taking. In comparison to Dune Imperium, which has so many fun worker placement spaces, right? Which is a more traditional worker placement game, but the spaces you're taking, there's a lot more variety in it. And so that was a, an interesting comparison for a game that we played recently. I was gonna bring that up as well, the, Dune, the comparison to Dune Imperium tangent here, but the, I guess the tension in Dune Imperium is you can, it's palpable. And here, aside from those last like two rounds competing for the tracks, I feel like, you know, the previous eight, seven, eight rounds are just kind of, playing the game to get to the last two rounds to try to jockey for those track positions. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, you know, in Dune Imperium, is it that much different though? You know, there you're playing for 10 points. And so everyone's typically at four five, six points for the first, you know, four rounds. And then after that, it goes, well, I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying, Adam. I definitely do. I, I, I think that there was, yeah, I, I don't know. I felt that the rounds were tense. Like you, you did still have the tension for competing for the phase bonuses. 
I definitely had a hard time at the end of the first phase trying to get the two development card colors you needed done and then trying to get the two done by the end of the second phase. So that's a nice mechanic that we haven't talked about yet. There's these, I guess the game's in three lunar phases, right? There's yeah. three rounds and three rounds and four rounds, I believe, and you're competing yep. for different goals to score some extra points during each kind of segment of the game. So the first three rounds, you're competing for one goal to get three in-game points, and the next three rounds similarly, and the last four rounds yeah. similarly. So that's, that was kind of a neat mechanic. You're right, Tim. Yeah, it gave you something extra to go for and kind of push it, and you, then you're kind of competing for the same things. But the other thing that, that added a similar thing was the, the monuments, I think they're called. But basically, they were like, if you were the first one to get three green development cards or the first one to get all of your production buildings built, then you would get something. So that also offered a little bit of a race and a little bit of a tension throughout the game. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how much tension you can have when you're, uh, you're, you're, start to each round is something like should we throw a big party in space just so we remember what fun can be or hey it's about time we had a chess tournament i'm serious that those those were actually a high council issues to be dealt with the high council did have some nice levity i think the the bobby fisher um was it boris baskin yeah a little chess <laughs> yeah. tournament reference was kind of neat so some of those high council cards are pretty good yeah cool uh, any other mechanisms you guys want to talk about? I just not a specific mechanism, but just as an overall observation about the game, I think we all had some concerns that you know maybe the worker placement part wasn't quite as uh, rewarding as it could have been. But on the other hand, there were some interesting mechanisms that aren't traditionally worker placement, like the bidding in the high council. And I think that's really interesting because it, it reminds me in a way of uh, say Pan Am, which took a pretty traditional route building game, but added in the bidding for the different um, the different actions that you could take. And I think mixing it up like that, even if all of the individual pieces or, a, or if any particular individual piece may not be as exciting as it might otherwise be, adding those together, I thought made this a pretty interesting game. Yeah, and I, I do think that there was a there was a hard decision every time whether to go to the high council. I mean, sometimes it wasn't a hard decision, but there were definitely plenty of times where I did have to think like is it worth it for me to give up this guy going to the bidding phase the resource bidding phase was was always a challenge do i put in the biggest stuff or am i giving up the possibility to do these developments at the end phase and then you go into the worker placement phase which kind of resolves what else you can do and so again not super exciting to do the worker placement but the whole thing led up to that and it just left you what with what options were available so i i do think that the the mechanisms all tied in really well together and still made an interesting game even if that one piece of it wasn't that great that interesting i agree on that there is a nice blend of everything kind of works together nicely and i want to call out there's some hand management in there too as you're playing the game you're collecting these cards either from the auction or from going to the worker placement spaces based on what you have in your hand that might affect how you're going to auction in the next round or there's a little bit of tempo aspect as to when you want to build those buildings try to nab them complete that race first so the hand management aspect was nice, and there was uh, something else I wanted to call up, but now I can't remember what it was. So, <laughs> well, you can bring it back into the in the production conversation if you want to. Adam, no, no okay. worries. We'll let we'll let you jump back in here. So let's talk about production. Adam, why don't you start here? What uh, what what do you think of the production here? Oh, so um, engine the little engine building aspect was the last thing. From the, there was some <laughs> like slight engine building in there too, just to to not leave that guy unmentioned. Yeah, you mean pr- particularly the building the production cards. Um, that uh, gave you more production at the end of the phase and then the relic and things like that. Right, So the rel- and then the building cards. So this goes into production. Um, the way the building cards kind of slot into your player board 
is one of the unique things about this game. And I think the production tries to be unique in a lot of ways, and it has some hits and some misses. So I'll talk about the player board since I brought that up. You have these kind of little funky player boards and these buildings slot into there in kind of unique ways so they won't be sliding around. And then production-wise, I'm going to talk about the art. I know Chris is going to get into the art too. The art, the palette, and the the game board itself, all of it's super pleasing, aesthetically nice. I love the colors. I could look at this all day. I, the map brought me into it. You know, the by map, I mean the, the map of the planet that you're putting all your workers on. It's, it's cool. It's very detailed. It has some little canyons. I just kind of want to go down there and explore and hang out with these guys and see what it's all about on this on this planet. So the production, uh, I'll talk about some uh, negatives later, but those are my positives for the most part. I would let Chris jump in here, but it looks like he just started eating in the middle of recording the podcast. So I'm going <laughs> to... So I'm going to jump in and follow up with... I, I love the player board here. I just... I love... I love a lot about the aesthetic here, and I know this is what drew Chris into it, but the theme is the idea that, and what, a, what an interesting theme too, the idea that the 60s space race was happening, but it wasn't happening to get to the moon like we thought it was. That was a cover for the fact that they were investing money into going through a wormhole and finding another planet. So what a bizarre, interesting concept that somebody had and turned into a game. But I love that it carries through that kind of 60s mid-century styling and and um the colors on the board i love i think this board has got to be one of my favorite boards game boards that i've ever played on it's just that the pastel colors that represent the the landscape it just it looks so cool to me i, I just love it so now chris now what do you think about the art but it's like it's like dark <laughs> it's not like easter pastel just want yes, to make that clear yeah, it's like yeah. dark pastel like <laughs> sinister pastel if that's a thing <laughs> Well, you know, if anything, it wasn't sinister enough. I mean, I usually like the really, really dark, uh, you know, sinister-looking art. And truthfully, this is you know, a little bit lighter than I would normally uh, really dig into. But I do really, I do really like the art in this game. I think they did a nice job with it. I think they managed to keep it relatively light and fun, but without making it cartoony, which is something that I think, uh, you know, the last uh, game that we talked about that I had gotten through a Kickstarter was Tunguru, and I think that. It was very similar to that in that sense, that there was uh, they did a nice job with the art, keeping it light, but but not too light. Uh, there's, there's a couple things in there that I just I really love. Like there's this one uh, kind of recurring theme that the player uh, tokens have a picture of uh, an astronaut wearing a helmet, you know, the standard round space helmet, where the face shield has the the, the flag of their country. I just think that's such a neat graphic, and it's so sort of uh, symbolic of how the the art for this game is. If anything, it kind of reminds me um, of Artemis Project. Not only in that it's a worker placement game set in space, but the art is actually a little similar to me too. And I, I haven't seen it in a while, but that's kind of the impression I get. Tim, would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I can see that. It's funny I actually played Artemis Project just this weekend. It definitely has a little bit of that similar aesthetic. Yeah, I mm. think so. I think just colonizing and developing. On, a, on another planet, you know, just um, it, it's going to have some of the same tones, I think, to it. Now, as far as the um, the rest of the art goes, uh, you know, the development cards are cute. It's Each development card kind of has a different little structure or vehicles you're building. They look very similar, but, you know, a, a cheaper, lower-cost development card tends to have a little tiny structure. A big, expensive development card has a big structure with a couple of vehicles on around. So that was kind of fun to look at. But otherwise, I was a little disappointed that the rest of the cards in the game didn't have a whole lot going on art-wise. Um, you know, all of the assistant cards that you could get up in the bidding phase just had an astronaut of a different color on it. 
um, with the you know with the terror look on their face. And other than that, most of the other you know cards just represented an icon to tell you what you're doing or had some text on it. So wasn't a whole lot going on art wise that I think they could have probably expanded you know built out the world a little bit more in the card art. And if I compare to Artemis Project, where every single card in there has a unique graphic that represents the type of mission you're going on or the type of you know the the thing that you're doing. Um, and so this was a little lacking there. I wish they had invested a little bit more in that aspect of it. I would agree. Adam, you said you had some negatives on the production. What uh, what what uh, got your goat here? What what didn't you like? So we talked about it during the game. the The components of the board game look ama- look amazing. So far as the resource tokens and the money, it looks like metal coins, and you got these nice kind of rounded edge plastic resource tokens, and they're super cool looking. But the way this game works, you're um, you know you're putting your workers out. You have you have them in your auction. You're throwing them down on this part of the board. Then you're putting them out over on the right side of the board. You're trading. I guess it's no different than most euros, mm-hmm. but you're trading resources here and there. I can I guess I would prefer some sort of little tracking mechanism rather than than shuffling. There's lots of bits. I guess bits going everywhere in this game. So that while they're beautiful, there's just a lot of them, and it seems like it could be done in a little more. I don't know, elegant fashion, streamlined fashion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you. I prefer tracks for tracking resources. They, they have five different resource types here. Um, you know, so you'd have you'd have a little bit bigger player boards and just like one marker on each of them. Something like what Gaia Project does or or what um, Tapestry does would be an easier way to track this stuff. But uh, it doesn't bother me too much. Okay. Uh, and I you know, I think I think probably why they do that even when they could use tracks is because it gives you some components to play with and otherwise there wouldn't be a whole lot in a game like this. But um, yeah, I totally it's get true. that. And then how was the setup? I heard you talking about the setup a little bit, but I wasn't involved in that. So what do you think of that? The setup was a little bit of a bear, <clears throat> but it, I think there's a payoff for it, um, mainly because to set up, you, you have this whole deck of the bidding cards and you basically shuffle a bunch in depending on your player count for each phase, and then you stack them so that the phase one cards, phase two cards, phase three cards are all stacked in a certain order. So it's not like you can just take a deck of cards, shuffle it, and the, the, the game's ready. It's where like at the end of the game, you're going to have to shuffle everything out to their different piles and then set them aside at the beginning of the game. you got to get different stacks, shuffle them, and then stack them on top of each other. So there was a lot of that just kind of fiddly card set up, and that was the biggest problem with it. But I don't mind that too much in a game because it pays off in the fact that the variability and that you're not going to see all the cards in a given game. You know, the fact that this plays over 10 phases and the cards that you're going to see are going to vary game to game. I like that. So it, I think it was okay. I think it was worth the, you know, the extra work. And it, and it also had a little bit of a buildup. It didn't have like you, you shuffle all the cards in and then in the first round you might get a card that wouldn't be that useful. But at the end of the game you're going to get a card that gives you one resource. This one, it had a nice flow to it, where in the first phase, you tended to get like cards that just gave you one or two resources, which was nice to start building up your engine. But then by the end of the game, there's cards in there that are going to help you get victory points or get... So doing that all worked definitely a little bit of a hassle for setup. I, I think it's I think it was worth it. I think that's okay. Yeah, in that sense, almost like uh, Blood Rage with the different cards for different phases. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, there was one uh, production issue that we noticed is, and that caused a little bit of confusion. There's probably a couple, I, I would say, iconography issues that I, that I had problems with. Uh, one was on the player board. There's these prestige tracks of four different colors, and you can move all the way to the top. The top number is 12. 
But as you're moving up the track at the four space and the eight space, you also get a little resource benefit. So if you move there, you get a resource benefit. And I think when you move to the 12 space on the track, you're supposed to get a resource benefit as well. But the icon for the resource benefit is actually above the 12 space on the track next to kind of what looks like an invisible 13th space. But as far as we could tell, the rule book indicated that you could only move to the 12 space. Once you're there, nobody else can move to the 12 space. So that was just a little confusing. It didn't really make sense why it was laid out that way. I also had some questions about there were some icons that came up that just weren't represented and I checked there's not really an appendix in the rule book there were some icons that didn't we we kind of you know I think we figured out how they work or you know made a decision how they work uh, but just a few things that weren't super clear in the iconography and I think you know someone who's super rules lawyerly you could sit there and spend 20 minutes arguing over what something means because it's not spelled out in the rule book but didn't cause a big trouble big big problem for us just a little bit of a little bit of a, a pain point there anything else on production you guys yeah, let me just say one other thing. Uh, and I think one of the running themes that we've heard from all three of us was the fiddliness of the game. And, you know, it bothered us to different degrees. And I will say that is one thing that bothered me, especially on the TTS mod, which is where we played it. It might not have been as bad in, in real life, but it gets a little bit frustrating, you know, monkeying around with all these little tiny pieces that don't, you know, aren't that easy to manipulate in TTS. But one thing I will say is um, what a huge difference it makes depending on which version of the game you get. Because I got the Kickstarter version, and I don't know if it is still available, but when I got it, I got the upgraded pieces. And if you don't get the upgraded pieces, you are, you know, getting yourself a box full of cardboard chits, which, you know, I mean, it's functional. It'll get the job done. But it doesn't feel that good in the hand. It doesn't feel as rewarding uh, as opposed to the upgraded pieces where you got the metal coins and these really nice, um, nicely illustrated, uh, rounded edge plastic pieces that are nicely made. I think that would make a huge difference for me playing the game uh, physically. And I haven't actually played the game physically, even though I own it, just because of because uh, of the pandemic. But I think that would make a huge difference if I was putting that out on the table. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with this conversation a lot, Chris, because I honestly think that I don't have a problem with resource chits being cardboard, especially when they're nicely illustrated like these. I Obviously, upgraded components would be nicer, but this this doesn't bother me. I, th I think it just depends on, you know, if, if you don't mind using cardboard to represent something, and that's, you know, how games traditionally were. I think this one does just a, a fine job with that. I understand where you're coming from. Obviously, it'd be preferred, but I don't think the components here. I think that the basic version of this, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is the basic version of this still looks like nice components to me and still looks like pieces I wouldn't mind playing with, even if they're just cardboard sheds. So that's just my personal take on it. Agreed that, you know, your version, that the deluxe version is going to be a nicer experience. But I think that this is a, a perfectly nice production for what it is. Do you know what the MSRP on this game is if you just got the retail version? Any idea what that runs? Yeah, I'm thinking about $40 maybe. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if this is a $40 game, I I think that the components are nice. You know, they're nice quality. I think I'd be happy with that at a $40 price point. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about moments in the game tonight? So any moments that stood out to you? And Chris, why don't you start this time? I think there was a series of moments. And really what, I, what comes to mind is that I think each of us had at least one or two big turns. And that's and that to me is a ton of fun because you know there's some games that you play where if you're not you're you're either killing it or you're not killing it. 
And in this game, in the end, the score ended up being relatively close, but there were moments when I felt like I was just getting crushed. I mean, you know, Tim had a, a turn where I, I don't even remember what all you did, but you got like 10 things done in one turn. And I'm going, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to come back from that? And then something similar with Adam. And then I had one myself. So, you know, it, mine was a little bit earlier on. And so I, I didn't think I got as much oomph out of it. You know, there are ones where you can, you, you build a building or two buildings or you, you get uh, you get a couple development cards done, and you can feel like you're you know you're running the world, and that's that's a pretty good feeling. And again, I appreciated that we were all able to get some moves like that in uh, and keep the game pretty close. Yeah, cool. I, I'll jump in. I, I liked that there was actually some real tightness, uh, even though I you know talked about the work replacement spots not being that interesting. The fact that the timing of when you could complete a specific development card or when you could com- there there was only one space on the board where you could build a construction. And each of us has four constructions to build. So basically, there was almost no way for everybody to build all their constructions over the course of the game, over the 10 phases, unless you use some additional cards that let you do that, you know, gave you extra actions. And so it just made those spaces actually useful. And I often felt like, oh man, if only I'd taken that space first, or I'd gotten the first player token, then I could have done that first. And he just blocked me out of it. Now I can't what I do what I want to do this game. And I think that's important in a, in a you know, a game where worker placement is is there as a you know where you can block people from a space make it count and I think it did a decent job of doing that here. Personally, I ran into that a lot and I liked those tight decisions. I liked that frustration of regretting that I didn't take one choice over another choice. So I had some fun moments from that part of the game. Adam, what about you? So nothing that like you know blew me away. Like oh my god, this was awesome and, and amazing. Like at the end of an eclipse, second dawn, or Dune Imperium, where somebody comes from behind the battle and takes home the championship. But when those Relic Power cards came out, I think that was pretty fun. That made the game a lot more interesting to me. There's So there's these Relic Power cards that come out at the first round of the third lunar phase. So around turn, I think round six mm-hmm. of the game, six or seven of the game is when they come out. And you have the auction for these um, the Relic cards. And those all have various powers, game-breaking powers or in-game points. And the one I picked up was called, I think it was Stargate. And that let me put my workers at any spot, whether there was another worker there or not. So it kind of opened up the game for me. It, made, it took that tightness away and just gave me like, you know, felt liberating. I was able to put my guys out here. I think I put one on there and Tim's like, wait, you can't do that. And I was like, but aha, yes, I can. <laughs> so just having little moments like that um, is always kind of fun in board game. Yeah, we didn't talk about those, uh, the relic powers, but that was kind of interesting too, because I talked about all the variable setup in the game and that relic powers was one place where you didn't, randomly choose what was available at the beginning of the game basically these 10 powers were just available at the, during the game and so when you get to the phase where those come up everybody bids on whether they're getting a relic power everyone's going to get one but it's just the order that you're getting them in you would think in a game like this that that would mean that there's always going to be three the most three most powerful relic powers are going to get taken every game but what's kind of interesting is because you know those are coming up you could actually set yourself up with a strategy that will benefit from some of them like the relic power i picked was one where Every time you do a development card, you get to move up one more space on a track. Now, I only got to use it three or four turns because I just had some expensive development cards I had to build. But if I thought about that at the beginning of the game, I could have saved up a handful of like cheap development cards and then set myself up to start hitting off like two development cards in the last three or four rounds and got an extra four, you know, eight, six to eight movement up the, the track. So 
it's pretty interesting, I think, having those always available, knowing that you can kind of build a strategy to set yourself up for the last round, but you still have to bid and hope that you bid high enough to, to get the one that you, you've been setting yourself up for. So I think that could lead, once you get to know the game a little bit, to some really interesting, fun decisions. And in your case, Adam, you know, you got to abuse it and had some, you know, good fun with it. Chris and I both did, I think, as well. Um, but those powers, I think, could also be even more interesting on future plays. All right, cool. Well, um, let's talk about final thoughts here. Would you request to play this game again? Uh, I'll jump in to start here. So <clears throat> this game did some things really interesting, but it also did a lot of things that were not super unique. So this isn't a game that I think I would be dying to go back and play. It's not going to be a game of the year for me, but I did enjoy my play of it and I would like to revisit it some more. And I say this a lot, you know, where, yeah, I, I think I would like to go back and replay it once in a while. And this is one of those games where it's not going to be my top game. I'm not going to ask to play it five times in a row because I do think it would probably get a little stale playing it a lot right in a row. But I do think that going back and playing it, you know, every couple months is just a fun alternative, something that's a little bit different, but is easy to teach and easy to get moving through could actually be a really fun experience. So I think that I, I may request to play it again but I'm not gonna be busting down the door and saying I need to go get a copy today. So that's kind of my general feel about it. I, I liked it, I liked some of the parts of it. I don't think I'd wanna play it too often though. Uh, what about you, Adam? I wanna play Chris's physical copy of this game. I think the components will be fun to hold in the hand and to be there around the table. It's a little bit fiddly on TTS, um, having to drag this thing and drag. So I, I don't think that fiddliness would carry over as much into the real physical board game just the components and the you know the aesthetics of it look so nice so yeah in real life definitely would want to try it but um i don't think i'm going to request this one again what about you chris this is this was your kickstarter delivery how do you feel about your first play of it i'm feeling pretty good about it i mean i won't say this is my favorite game ever and i i think my feelings about it are almost exactly the same as yours it's a game that's fun it's, uh, it's supposedly a 60 to 90 minute game. And of course we managed as we do with all games to turn it into a four or five hour game. Um, but if this, if we really did, but it was, it was pretty simple to get into. It was not hard to jump into. It was a really lean game. I mean, the rounds go by incredibly fast. So even if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to, you theoretically, you know, cut off a few uh, rounds at the end and make it even shorter game if you wanted to, I guess. But, um, you know, for something that, you know, if I wanted a relatively short game, uh, something that was easy to put on the table, something that's easy to ex you know just explain to somebody who hasn't played it before. I I'd love to play this one again. I like the pieces. I like the art. I like to look at it. And for me, that's that's an important thing. It's not one I'm going to break out every day, but it's definitely one that I think I'll I'll want to play again. Yeah, I think it's important to call out again. I think that this is a this probably is a 90 minute game with three players, maybe even less than that after a play or two. You know, I did the setup wrong, so we wasted time in between this first and second round fixing figuring something out. And you know, like there were a few times during the game where we're just like, wait a second, did we set that up right? So part of it was just like first time messing around on TTS, you know, th there was no AP here. Nobody like, you know, spent five minutes all the time. Not that I noticed anyway, like there was a few, you know, longer turns, but it, I, I never, I never really felt like I was sitting there waiting for other people to do stuff very often. So I think the game runs pretty quickly and on a second play, especially if uh, physical production, this would, this would be a quick, um, you know, quick, easy game to get through. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks. I think that will wrap up our conversation on Godspeed. We'll jump into what we're looking forward to in the world of board games right after this.
All right, welcome back. So let's talk about what's exciting in the world of board games this week. Chris, what do you have for us? Anything you've been keeping your eye on? Well, I really feel like I uh, missed the party a couple of weeks ago. You know, talk about FOMO. Like, I truly did miss out. You guys played uh, Dune Imperium. And all I've heard ever since then is how great that game was. And it looks amazing. And <laughs> I want to play that game so bad. So I'm just looking forward to uh, whoever picks that one next for game night. And um, yeah, I, I, I want to see that game. I want to play it. Yeah, that was a funny game because this was right before Christmas and my work was getting a little quieter at that time. So we played it on game night on Monday night. And then like, like I think it was Wednesday morning, I was like, guys, I got kind of a slow day at work. You, got, you want to get jump on TTS and play again? And so Steve, Adam and I jumped on and then we did it the, the same the next day. So we did like three games that week just because we just wanted to keep getting back. I mean, I did anyway. I wanted to just keep getting back to it. So I actually have my uh, my game just got shipped from Game Nerds today and will be uh, at my house in a few days, hopefully. So I'm excited to get into the one player mode and also um, see if I can get my wife and, and our other friend to play with, you know, Jen from the podcast. We'll see if I can get the two of them to play with me as well. But yeah, I really love the game, Chris, and I think you're I think you're going to dig it. So it's it's going to be fun. Nice. What about you, Adam? What do you what are you uh, seeing out there in gaming this week? A couple things. I had a Kickstarter delivered uh, canvas. It's by Road to Infamy Games, and I should look up the designer, and I'll do that momentarily, or maybe uh, maybe Tim's on the caper right now. But anyway, this game is relatively light. It's beautiful. It's one of the most gorgeous games I have. It's in a small little package. You're basically buying these pieces of, a, of artwork from a market row and then constructing them together, trying to fill in the little color palettes of symbols at the bottom to meet the scoring criteria at the top. And you're making you're just making three paintings the whole game. It's simple. There's some like nice snappy decisions, and the game and the whole production is absolutely gorgeous. So I got a few plays of that in this past week. Also, I don't know if I've talked about it, but I've I've had my eyes on Beyond the Sun. Uh, it's a board game by Rio Grande Games. It's um it's basically a giant tech tree game. It has these beautiful dice. Beyond the Sun is by uh, Dennis K. Chan and Rio Grande Games. Canvas is by Jeff Chin and Andrew Nerder, um, are the developers. So Beyond the Sun is probably my number one game of 2020 that I want to play that that I haven't played yet. Right? That you know we we've got through a number of the games we were all excited about, but that's the one game that the more I've heard about it, the more I've seen how unique it is. That it's really got me excited to give it a shot, and I feel like the different elements of that game are going to be a big hit with our group. So I think that's one we're going to have to, um, you know, hit and uh, you know hopefully have a conversation about pretty soon. But uh, definitely looking forward to that one as well. The one thing that uh, came up this week that really got me pretty excited is uh, there's a game that I've been hearing about for years called Russian Railroads, which is it's a it's a railroad game, but it's more of a Euro game, um, and it just it's it's supposed to be great. A little bit of worker placement in there, I guess. A little bit of route building from what I understand but people rave about it there was an expansion that was out of print for a long time called german railroads that apparently you know balanced some things made it even more interesting but i just saw they announced that there is going to be a print of a a box called ultimate railroads which is going to include russian railroads german railroads a number of other expansions some new content for it this is this is one of those games that every time I hear people talk about it and just like you can hear the joy in their voices, I, I see it show up on so many best games of all times lists. I don't know a whole lot about how the gameplay plays, but just hearing 
people just in love with this game, I feel like I really want to try it. So this seems like a great opportunity too. So I'm really tempted that when this, I think they're going to, I don't think it's going to be on Kickstarter. I think it's going to be like a, there might be like a pre-release. I'm tempted. I'll, I'll probably be at least checking out some more reviews on it and making sure it seems like a good fit, you know, fit uh, for something for me. But I'm, I'm excited about it, especially being someone that's not that interested in, you know, your traditional rail railway games or, you know, kind of economic games. I, I get the impression that this doesn't quite fall into that same, you know, that same grouping. So to me, this uh, this has sounded fun and I can't wait to check it out. Helmet Oli is the designer and it is being released by Hans im Gluck, which I think is a German company. And I understand that the German edition is coming out this spring, but I don't think it's going to be available in the U.S. till the, the fall or I think it was I think I read August or September or something like that. But anyway, we'd like, like to give it a shot at some point, and it uh, seems like a good chance to do that. Well, I think that will wrap up the episode this week. If you have any thoughts about the game we played today and you'd like to chat with us about it, uh, hit us up on social media. Hope you enjoyed the show. Until next week, take care, everybody. Have a good night.